Blog Talk Radio. Gonna tell you a little bedtime tale, legend it will become. Burgers flying out the door, sail on. Two for one, no concern for the future. Living for today. Fast food bite on your way, lay it all to waste. The masses are afflicted now. Moo, mad cow, mad cow, mad cow, mad cow, line dance song. Hey, Sangai Nation, welcome to the show. Sangai with you here on another Friday afternoon. Some show notes really quick. If you're looking for some professional wrestling in the next couple of days, tonight, WCWO back at the Outlaw Arena in Indianapolis, Indiana. FGW happening in Hamilton, Ohio. Create a Pro Wrestling in Lindbrook, New York. 907 Pro in Anchorage, Alaska. GNW in London, Kentucky. Tomorrow night, VPW in Brewer, Maine. TPW in Startup, Washington. SAPW in Spokane, Washington. Russell Club in Boise, Idaho. New Wave Fro in Terre Haute, Indiana, AACW in Kokomo, Indiana, HCW in Jeffersonville, Indiana, BMFX in Lafayette, Indiana, KEPW in Frankfort, Kentucky, WLW in Troy, Missouri, FWF in Warsaw, Indiana, RCW in South Bend, Indiana, IPW in Muncie, Indiana, EPW in Odin, Indiana, UCW in Salina, Tennessee, SNW in Tewksbury, Massachusetts, 907 back in Anchorage, Alaska on Saturday, DCCW in McLean, Florida, BIW in West Monroe, Louisiana, CCW in Athens, Georgia, and DOA tomorrow night in Portland, Oregon. And without any further ado, I want to welcome our guest to the show, someone we have been very much anticipating, Big Bill Anderson. Thank you so much for being on the show today. We definitely appreciate you being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm I'm very happy to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now, since it's your first time with us, I will start you out with our traditional first-timer question. What led to you getting into the business of professional wrestling? That's an easy answer. I was, uh, in 1971, I was 15 years old, living in Southern California, and I had an opportunity to uh, be watching TV one day, and I saw John Tolis uh, throw Monsell's powder into the eyes of Freddie Blassie, and it captivated my imagination right there. John Tolis and Freddie Blassie with Dick Lane, and Red Shoes Dugan and all the rest of the guys, Jimmy Lennon from uh, Mike LaBelle's promotion. And I said to myself right there at 15, I want to be a wrestler. And uh, John Tolis was my real motivation, him and Freddie Blassie. Not a bad pair to have as your motivation to get into wrestling. You have worn almost every hat that there is to wear in professional wrestling. You've been an in-ring wrestler, referee, ring announcer. You've written books. You've taken care of the ring, so many different hats. 
what would you say has been your favorite role that you've dealt with in your time in pro wrestling? Well, it's kind of hard to say. I had a lot of success as a ring announcer, and a lot of prestige went to that because I was a WWF ring announcer. Well, I did it for a lot of different promotions, but WWF is where I got my big start in. Uh, they treated me real good, and there was a lot of opportunities there. Uh, I got a because of them, I got a role in a movie uh, or a TV show with Roddy Piper and Jesse Ventura uh, called uh, uh, Body Slam. Not Body, uh, yeah, Body Slam. I'm sorry, yeah, Body Slam. No, that was a movie. I'm sorry. Uh, oh, it was a TV show that uh, Roddy and Jesse had. I can't think of the name of it. Um, tag team. Well, tag team. Yeah, I knew it was wrestling related. Yeah, it's so long ago. It's thirty over 30 years ago. So I did that. I did the ring announcing for the opening segment of that show. Uh, and I was very fortunate uh, to get my Screen Actors Guild card, all because of the WWF. And so I got my break there in 87, 88, started ring announcing with them. Uh, I'd already been wrestling since 1974, but uh, it was an opportunity because I was in the right place at the right time because of circumstances uh, that happened. And uh, But I enjoyed wrestling. I enjoyed all aspects of the business. I loved wrestling. Uh, I was thinking about this earlier today. Uh, it, I kind of equate myself with the same guy that's in a movie that maybe you see 15 names on a roster or the uh, or the players of a movie, and somebody's at the top, and somebody's at the bottom, and there's guys in the middle, and they're all the guys there. Like, let's just use a Western, for example. you got guys that are the bartender or the blacksmith or uh, the guy that runs the corral or something that's feeding the horses. Hey, you know what? They're all important parts of the movie. And that's what I equated myself to. I'm, I was a I was a part of a show. It wasn't a one man team here. It was part of a show to entertain people. And whether I set the ring up, there was nights I set a ring up for WWF, and I was the ring announcer and or a fill in wrestler. It didn't matter. I was part of the show, and I was proud, very proud to be there. And uh, I, I didn't look at it like, oh, he's the ring guy, so you know, I, I'm the ring guy, so it's like uh, I'm a lesser lesser person than anyone else on the show. I didn't look at it like that. It's everyone has a role to do and it's all part of a team. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's it. I, I like to wrestle. I like to ring announce. I did refereeing. Uh, yeah. Like you said, I've done every aspect of the business. I ran shows for a couple of years in California uh, about 20 years ago. And I was very successful doing that. I, I did everything that I could do in the business and I loved it all. It's all. It was all part of me because I loved the business. One of the places that I saw you as a ring announcer that I really, really enjoyed was the AWF, which was syndicated nationally in the mid-'90s. They had a round system, which was very unique, at least to American audiences at the time. What did you think going into the AWF as far as what the round system might do for the audience and what you thought the chances of success for it were? Well, it, nothing to do with the round system. My first thought was I didn't give the promotion much of a chance. In my mind, I didn't say this to Paul Alberstein, the owner, of course, or any of the wrestlers. 
uh, Tito Santana was booking. Brian Blair was uh, high up in the ra- uh, ratings there in the, in the show, part of the show. It, I didn't say anything to anybody, but everybody wants to take on Vince McMahon. It was done by Herb Abrams, you know, Paul Alperstein. Well, obviously Eric Bischoff at WCW, but others have claimed we're going to take over the world of wrestling. I've heard that before time and again, and no one was ever going to do that. Now, I don't know, maybe this new guy with AEW, uh, obviously he's got $400 billion behind him. Maybe that's a different ballgame. I don't know. I don't follow the business as much nowadays as I did when I was involved in it because it was my life. Uh, But whenever a promoter comes around, whether it was Paul Alperstein or not, and he's, ah, I've got hundreds of thousands of dollars to burn, you're going to burn it, all right. You will burn it because the talent's going to take it from you. Everybody's going to get their paydays. And you will burn through it, whether you make a dent in Vince McMahon's product or trying to steal his wrestlers or whatever, that's going to be another story. But uh, so I'd heard it all. So the round system didn't didn't really bother me one way or the other. I didn't have much uh, thought on it because my first thought is, okay, how many shows is this guy going to do before he burns through his money? I've seen it happen a hundred times in the business. Promoters come and they give you they give you the pep talk. I've got X amount of dollars. I will take the wrestling world over. And it's like two months later, they're bankrupt and they don't return calls anymore after they've written a bunch of bad checks. So I've heard all that before. So Paul Alberstein was a stand-up guy, though. I'm not. I, I'm trying. I'm definitely not trying to badmouth the guy. Uh, he was a good man and he had a love for the business and he was trying his hardest. And he did get the best of the talent. Uh, he had he had everybody that I could remember that you know pretty much that wasn't under contract to WCW or WWF at the time. Uh, so you know he he was trying his best. So it's no knock on him. Uh, it's just you can't compete with the big leagues like that. It's just they have too much money. And in Vince's case, what people didn't understand when you're fighting for family as well as the business, it's his family business. Uh, so he has more at stake to fight tooth and nail, down to the last drop of blood in his body uh, to win the fight, which he has in every case. Uh, So, you know, nobody's going to beat Vince unless he beats himself. One of the things that happened in the AWF was, I'm sure, a scary moment. Uh, My mentor, the Diceman, Ronnie Vegas, had his neck broken in a match with Greg Valentine on a headlock takeover that went wrong, of all things. I know uh, it was a close call for him getting to the hospital in time to get help, but do you remember anything of the night when Diceman broke his neck? No. Was that in Tampa? Uh, I believe it was in Chicago. It was for the AWF. Yes, yeah, we did tapings in Chicago and Tampa. Uh, I honestly, in Chicago, I don't remember that that happening. Maybe I, it was a taping I missed for whatever reason. Uh, I did several tapings in Tampa and in Chicago, but it might have been one I missed. And if I didn't miss it, I certainly don't remember that for some reason. I was somehow got involved in something else and didn't hear about it or whatever uh, on the show. Uh, obviously, that's quite serious. How did he come out of that? Um, uh, he continued the match, not realizing how hurt he was, got oh backstage, God. and Terry Taylor more or less forced him to go to a hospital. When he got there, sure. he 
went into shock as soon as he got to the hospital, but because he got there so quick, they were able to help him, and he only missed maybe four or five months, came back better than ever. Well, thank God he survived that. That's obviously quite serious. Uh, somehow, I don't recall it. The only reason I might not recall it, I must not have been there for that taping. And I was at a lot of tapings, but there could have been one or so that I missed uh, before I'd left. I, I did quit being the ring announcer at some point when we were doing them in Tampa. Uh, I just really, uh, I didn't see eye to eye with Tito Santana, to be honest with you. Uh, we were never really close friends or anything, and he was the boss uh, that I had to answer to. And I really didn't care to work for him anymore. Had nothing to do with Paul Alberstein. Uh, or the AWF. I love the boys. Uh, met a lot of great guys. Don Cronodal, uh, you know, so many different guys I think back. Tommy Rich was on those tapings, you know, they're a barbarian. There were so many great, talented guys uh, that I got to uh, see again that I'd met through WWF or WCW days in the 80s or whatever. So it was really nice seeing some of the boys. Uh, Cowboy Bob Orton, you know, all the guys. Uh, great, great, great talent. Terry Taylor has been a friend of mine for 30 years, 40 40 years, I should say, 40 years. So, uh, you know, it's nothing to do with the talent. But sometimes, you know, if you don't see eye to eye with somebody, I just, it's a personality clash. And I just didn't really care for Tito. That was my opinion, nothing to do with anything else, uh, you know. Absolutely. Sometimes not everybody's a match for everybody else and nothing wrong <laughs> with that. That's true. Now, you in recent years have been coming out with some books about professional wrestling. I know uh, you are something of a historian when it comes to pro wrestling. What interested you in doing that aspect of professional mm -hmm. wrestling? Well, it was actually about 11 years ago I, I worked on my first book. I, I The reason I worked on books uh, – it's because I'm a fan of the business as well as being a part of it professionally. Uh, I still respect the old guys. I respect, I respect the luchadors in Mexico, which I've had a lot of success down there. And the names there mean a lot to me. And uh, so uh, one of my books I did was uh, a book on uh, fallen friends of Mexico. It's, it's basically about the deaths of about 25 wrestlers from Mexico. Uh, some of the big names, and some died, uh, you know, of old age. Some died of in-ring injuries and miscellaneous others. And I just felt I owed a tribute to these guys to keep their names alive. Uh, and to say I did another book uh, called Big Bill Anderson Remembers His Fallen Friends of Wrestling for guys in the United States. And it's a lot of old-timers. It's the Sheik and uh, little bios on them and pictures of myself with them and wrestling against them. Uh, Big John Studd is in this, Red Bastine, Professor Tanaka, the Bruiser and Crusher, Bruiser Brody, uh, Big Boss Man, Jack Briscoe, Freddie Blassie, and a lot of guys like that, guys that I respected and or wrestled against or worked on shows with them. Uh, and I wanted to pay tribute to them once they had passed away to make sure that I did what I could to keep their name around and let people understand who they were and how much they impressed others in the world while they were here. Uh, you know, I met Jack Briscoe when he was NWA world champion in Portland, Oregon in 1973, and his, his personality and his rig work made an everlasting impression with me. And uh, I saw Jack again in 2003 
and took, I took some pictures with them in, at the Cauliflower Alley Club in Las Vegas. And I told Jack personally, face-to-face, what a, what a thrill it was to meet a hero, and he was my hero. So that kind of thing was very important to me. And when Jack passed away just a couple years later, I wanted to make sure he's in my book uh, to let fans know and people know that um, what a stand-up guy Jack Briscoe was, what an athlete he was. He was a hero. I mean, to guys in the wrestling business that like to, let's just say, scientific wrestling, like old term, uh, Jack Briscoe, Dory Funk Jr., those kind of guys are the greatest. Uh, Harley Race, you know, and, and uh, Terry Funk and Vern Gagne, you know, it, it goes back to that kind of grouping of guys. But So I wanted to do a book on my – tri- they're called tribute books, really, is, is of Mexican wrestling, uh, some famous luchadors from Mexico, and one book was from the United States. And then I my, – but the first book I did, which uh, very strangely I don't have uh, uh, any more printed copies of, and I can't get printed copies because uh, uh, I just can't because it's just a, a password uh, that has gone through another person, and I can't get into the uh, uh, um, company to retrieve more books. But I did a book on my school, uh, my wrestling school students. Uh, and I know you're going to ask me eventually about Sting and the Ultimate Warrior I trained those guys, and Luis Piccoli, uh, my dear best friend, uh, passed away on February 15, 1998. But I wanted to do a book on my wrestling school students, all the guys that I helped influence through the years, and guys that helped me become the person I am, students of mine, uh, that people that came through my school and trained at my school. And... Uh, it meant a lot to me because, it, for one, it was how I made a living for a number of years besides wrestling. But those people all had an impact on my life. Uh, Louis Piccoli um, was just a punk 17-year-old kid coming right out of high school when he saw me at the L.A. Sports Arena ring announcing one night. And he walked up to me and he says, hey, I heard you run a wrestling school. Uh, a guy named Jack Armstrong told me about you. I said, yeah. I said, and I handed him one of my cards out of my tuxedo. I pulled a card out. And I said, here, give me a call. Well, he showed up the very next day for training. I had a school in Pasadena, California at the time, and Louis showed up, and uh, he was one of the most natural gifted athletes I'd ever come across. Uh, he mastered every hold, first time shown. Most incredible thing I've ever seen. And to be honest with you, even by the end of the, the class, which was about a three-hour class, he was running the class. I let him, he says, can I, Bill, do you mind if I show, let the guys, if I show them how to do something and let them do it? I said, go ahead, Louie, go ahead. And he was running the class. That's rare. That is so rare. Uh, but that's how much uh, talent that kid had that all got thrown away 10 years later when he passed away, uh, you know, like a lot of guys that uh, die young and, uh, and girls that die young. Uh, just wasted life. It's a, it's a shame. So I did that book on, on a lot of students that came through my school. And, you know, uh, the Angel of Death, Dave Sheldon, uh, that uh, worked a lot in Dallas area, uh, he passed away. And uh, uh, Dave was a very good friend of mine. I've been to Dave's grave in Dallas, right outside of Dallas, and wanted to pay tribute to him by showing up at his grave and say a few words. Uh, he was uh, cremated, and I went to where he's, his cremation uh, niche is. So, you know, I did these books out of respect or my friends in the business, people that made an impact on my life is, is the best way to say it. Now, like we covered earlier, you 
would be in charge of the ring, especially if the WWF came around the West Coast, uh, you would be in charge of that ring crew and so forth a lot of times. In pro wrestling, we know that rings can differ quite a bit. There's different styles of rings, different sizes. The mechanics of them can be a little bit different. I'm sure you've seen some strange rings in your day. What would you say has been the strangest ring that you've seen where wrestlers had to perform? Well, well, I've, yeah, I have seen all kinds of rings. Uh, the WWF tried to keep their rings all as similar as possible, and it was mainly designed like that with the idea behind it was to make the boys each night have the same ring to perform on and not, uh, like, have to complain about a ring being, like, too hard, this or that, you know. So you, they tried to make all the rings the same, but for many years they couldn't do that because it was just not a financial thing that they could do because they were running three shows a night. You know, they don't do that now. But back in the 80s, uh, a lot of people probably don't realize, WWF for many, many years was running three shows a night, uh, and sometimes even more than that because they were doing some afternoon shows with the same crew of guys. But they were running three shows all across the country. One might be a high school gym, but the next might be a coliseum in some other city, and the other might be like a mid-sized auditorium in another city. Uh, but they had so much talent that they could spread their boys out like that. Uh, and that's how I got a lot of work, setting the ring up in, in towns more to the West Coast, Phoenix to uh, Northern California. Um, I would set the ring up, and uh, I would also be used as a standby wrestler, which was I was used quite often because guys didn't show up for injuries or travel delays or whatever it was. So I got a lot of work that way uh, in many shows. Uh, I remember one time we'd set the ring up in Phoenix, and I'll answer your question here in just a second, but I, was, I set the ring up in Phoenix one night, and uh, uh, me and my friend Tim Patterson, who became my he was my tag team partner also, but we set the ring up in Phoenix for a WWF show, and we had to be in Salt Lake City uh, the very next night for another show. So we wrestled each other in Phoenix, and we had to tear the ring down. And then we had to drive all the way to Reno, Nevada, which was, uh, I don't even remember now, 12, 14-hour drive and do that all night and all day. And we got to the arena, the Salt Palace in Salt Lake City, I think it was like about 3 or 4 in the afternoon, and to unload the ring, set it up, and then we had to wrestle the opening match that night. And then the next night, drive to Sacramento. So we had, you know, there was a lot of really unusual bookings the way it happened. And when you're doing the ring, it, it's even doubly hard, obviously. Now, you're not just wrestling. You're a lot of physical labor in setting up the ring. But some of the rings that I saw that were the most unusual were probably in Mexico. Uh, spent a lot of time in Mexico, and a lot of their rings were boxing rings. There was no give in it. There was no little coil spring or anything. It was just solid um, steel and plywood, basically. And uh, in the ring, I remember a tag match. I wrestled a team called Los Brazos, and there was a real heavy set guy. He, they, they were all passed away now, uh, but Brazo de Plata was a very – Short, heavy-set uh, man, uh, probably about 5'8", about 290 pounds, 300 pounds. And uh, he did a splash off the top rope for all the match. All our matches were two out of three falls. So he, one of the falls, he pinned me. Uh, I was wrestling as the Mercenaries, one of my masked ideas that I did with Luis Piccoli and Tim Patterson. And he pins me for a fall, 
and they give us like a two-minute rest period between falls. I couldn't even breathe, even at the beginning of the fall. I was still laying right where he had left me in the middle of the ring. I was still trying to catch my breath because when he hit, there was no give at all. He just landed like barrel chest and belly first on me, and there was nothing to give on the ring. So I was still just like dying for a, a breath of air. Uh, so I remember things like that, a lot of the hard rings in Mexico and and that, those really shorten your career. I think a lot of my knee problems now, I'm 65 years old. I started when I was 17, and I think a lot of my knee problems are a lot from Mexico, uh, wrestling to those long two out of three fall, like 45-minute matches down there. Uh, you know, I, I'm not beat up or, or injured from wrestling the Bushwhackers in a five-minute match in, uh, for WWF. It's those long 45-minute matches from Mexico that really do you in as you get older. For sure. Very different style in Mexico. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But, but I loved it. You know, I love that style, even though there was a language barrier, sometimes major language barrier, where the other person you were wrestling didn't speak a word of English besides hello. That was it. And I didn't speak more than 10 words of Spanish, and most of them bad words, and or learn how to say water or bathroom when you're wandering around Mexico City, Guadalajara, or Tijuana. So I didn't understand Spanish, but you know what? You communicate by respect in the ring. And uh, and I found that uh, my personality worked just fine with those guys because they saw I wasn't an egotistical um, type of guy. And uh, I had a very much love and respect for them and their characters that they were <clears throat> with the mask and everything. Now, in the era where you were the most active as far as being in the ring and on television and so forth, that was still an era where a lot of wrestlers would run into trouble at bars with people wanting to test them or getting upset if the female population of the bar was paying too much attention to the wrestlers, what have you. Did you personally encounter a lot of barroom fights with the wrestlers, or was that something that you didn't see in the places you were? It did not happen to me. Uh, I was not a frequent bar kind of guy. Uh, I was very content after a show to go back to my hotel room and relax and just watch TV and chill out because uh, uh, my body was pretty beat. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying I never went out, but the guys that I went out with, uh, I never encountered a problem or I was with the right group of guys at the right time. And I mean, I've been out, I was out with The Undertaker and uh, Paul Bearer before. Uh, This is 30 years ago in Vegas. I've been out with guys before and it's just, uh, I never encountered any problem. Uh, It's not like it was a happening thing every night that would happen and it also would happen more to guys that were kind of like looking for it or were very much receptive to that approach by people Uh, I never got drunk at a bar and said and proclaimed I am the king of the world guys to a bunch of people that don't know me and they're looking over at me and saying Ah, he don't look like that much, to to put that challenge out there. So I kept myself, uh, you know, I protected myself. 
because I had a family to support and a job to do. And getting my teeth knocked out or my eye gouged out in a barroom fight is not going to help me whatsoever. Speaking of gouging an eye out, (laughs) in our industry there are a lot of people of Samoan heritage, and there has been for several generations now. They are renowned as some of the tougher men in our industry, and there have been stories of some of the Samoan wrestlers being involved in the removing of eyeballs during mm-hmm. some of these bar fights and even just fights in general. Did you have much interaction with the Samoan contingent in pro wrestling? I know there's different families I, and so forth, but they right. they sort of overlap and seem to be one big clique within the wrestling business. Exactly. Well, I can tell you I've known every Samoan-type wrestler there is in the business besides – Peter Maivia that passed away before I had a chance to beat him. Uh, but I was in the ring with uh, Afa and Sika in 1973 training when I was training with Kurt Von Steiger in Phoenix, Arizona, where I live. I was training with Afa and Sika, who were just beginning their careers. And I've known all their kids, all the offspring from their kids. I've known every, you know, I've wrestled uh, – I mean, we go to, you know, Haku and Snuka, wrestled them many times. But all, everybody involved in the family, from Sam and I, all of them I've been in the ring with in some respect, one, one way or another, whether it was wrestling or ring announcing or refereeing their matches, uh, for sure, uh, for years, all through the 80s in particular. Uh, plus, I've done foreign tours with, tours with Sam, where I was a ring announcer, in 2000 and 2001 and 2002, I was gone for a month in the Middle East with Samaniah, uh, Samu, and also a Pacific tour where I was gone for a month. And we were in uh, the Pacific tour. We were in South Korea, uh, Japan, Okinawa, Guam, many islands through the Pacific. It was all for Armed Forces Entertainment. Uh, and then we ended up at uh, Hickam Air Base in Hawaii for a bunch of shows, all entertaining U.S. troops that are stationed overseas. And in the uh, Middle East, I was in Kuwait, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Egypt, Turkey, and Bahrain. And I was gone a month for that tour where I did the ring announcing. Uh, so that was pretty cool. And I got to uh, spend all that time with Samu. Uh, he's a great guy, fantastic guy. Uh, and uh, also Lloyd Anaya. You know, these are all family members of, from uh, all trickling down from Afa and Sika uh, for the most part, or Peter Maivia, you know, and it's like, and I used to wrestle Rocky Johnson all the time, all through the 80s in Hawaii, all over the place uh, in around Southern California too. Uh, so I've known them all. I've, I've known every one of these guys. And, uh, um, you know, so it's just like, that's all been a big part of wrestling. A big part of my life is being around all the Samoan uh, characters of wrestling and they're all great guys. And I never had a physical problem with any of them because I respected them all. I never had an attitude of like, uh, you know what, uh, I could kick your ass. And it's like, no, that doesn't come out of my mouth. <laughs> it's just like, I have no reason for that to come out. It's like, uh, I treated them all with respect that they deserved, and I got it back. So it was like, it's a cool relationship, and I'm friends with them to this day. 
you wanted to mention it earlier. Uh, you, like you said, had a hand in training the likes of Sting, the Ultimate Warrior, Louis Spicoli, many, many, many other people in our industry. When you are training guys, did you have sort of a natural instinct on who is going to make it to the top of the wrestling industry versus who is maybe going to be the journeyman's or maybe someone that wasn't going to last very long if they made it out of the school, that type of thing, or were you just training guys and hoping for the best for all of them? Well, that's how you begin with any character, any guy coming into the school or girl for that matter. You, that's your first, I think, mentality is going to start training you. Let's hope for the best. Let's, you have to play it by ear and see what happens. Got to see how your dedication is going to be. You got to see how injury prone you are, how much you complain. Like, oh my God, my back's hurt. I got, you know, two body slams and all of a sudden he's ready to crawl out of the ring, call it a night. Or you got the guy that's in there busting his butt in front of everybody and wanting to work out even after I've called the class saying, Bill, do you mind if I do a couple more things? Wow, those kind of guys stand out. Now, that was a character, Louis Spicoli was like that, uh, to, to mention just a name. Um, he, he would go above and beyond because he had such a love for the business. Uh, it wasn't a love for getting rich. Uh, it wasn't that kind of a, a desire in him. It was a desire just to be in the ring and be a part of the show. Kind of my mentality was when I began. Uh, Sting and Warrior were part of a, a, a four-man team in 1985. Uh, they, uh, uh, a man named Rick Bassman paid Red Bastine, who was my partner in the wrestling school, paid Red Bastine a sum of money to train four guys. And it was Sting, Warrior, and Mark Miller and Garland Donahoe. There was four guys, and he wanted to call them like Power Team USA type thing, a red, white, and blue All-American team. The concept that Rick wanted to do in 1985, <clears throat> I knew was impossible uh, at the time, and because you can't, he wanted to take four guys, and this is still in the territory days, 1985. Vince hadn't bought everybody out, you know. Stu Hart was still running. Don Owen was still running. There's a lot of places. Jerry Lawler, people had still had territories, like we used to say in the old days. So what promoter could afford to bring four guys in at one time? Uh, and that means four of his guys on, another sh on his shows have to be laid off. Well, you know, everybody's fighting for their position, whatever uh, promotion you're going to. So I didn't feel that that was a viable way of outlook that, that, to, that was going to be worked out, that was going to be accomplished. So I can tell you, this is the honest to God truth. Um, in 1985, late 1985, during our training, uh, Jim Helwig, Warrior, called me and asked me to come down to uh, Venice Beach to Gold's Gym and meet with him. <clears throat> excuse me, and Sting, uh, they wanted to talk to me about something. <clears throat> so I went down on a morning uh, and met with Sting and Warrior. You know, I, I call them that because that's just what they became. But obviously we didn't call each other Sting and Warrior or Bill or any of that then. You know, it was a different ballgame. <clears throat> excuse me. So I met with them and they asked me, they said, look, we don't think, that's what Jim, Jim is saying this, we don't think we can go in as a team anywhere as four guys. And I said, you know what, you're, you're absolutely correct. 
I don't believe it's the right period of time that any promotion can afford to bring in four new guys with the same gimmick, uh, four new uh, wrestlers. It's not like you're coming in a couple different tag teams that could liven things up. You're coming in as a four-man team. That's not a concept that, that I could recognize because 1985, it wasn't, wasn't going to happen. So anyway, Jim says, hey, me and Steve, we want to just go and work for uh, – we have two choices. We can either go work for Jerry Lawler and Jerry Jarrett, or we can go and work for Stu Hart. we got two choices. And as I recall, this was like October or November of 85. And I told Jim, I says, look, I'm going to be very honest with you. I've got nothing to gain. I'm not making money on, on you guys. You know, Red Bastine made all the money on this deal. I'm just helping train you guys. I'm in the ring doing all the bumps with you guys. I'm giving you the best solid advice I can give you. My advice is go to work for Jerry Lawler in Tennessee because you'll get, you won't make a lot of money, but you're going to get a lot of experience. I had wrestled down there in 1975, and I was wrestling seven days a week, twice on Saturdays because of TV tapings, either in Huntsville, Alabama, or, oh, my gosh, uh, Chattanooga. We were doing different uh, TV tapings. So I, would, I was working a lot getting experience as, a, as an 18-year-old kid in 75. So I says, I would recommend going down there. You know, it's no knock on Stu Hart because he's the best. Uh, everybody knows what was turned out from Stu Hart's promotion in Calgary. But I said, look, Jim, you don't want to go up to Canada at the dead of winter and spend the next four months learning how to wrestle and driving four and five and ten hours in the snow to your shows. I said, you can go to Tennessee, and you're going to have beautiful weather down there in the winter. And I said, that's why I recommend working for Jerry Lawler. It's going to be a better circuit. I think you're going to get more experience. And uh, that's exactly what they ended up doing, both him and Sting cut out and left and went down to there and the rest kind of became history with them. They ended up going with Bill Watts and blah, blah. Their whole career was formed. Uh, I, who knows what would have happened if they would have gone to Calgary. Uh, maybe the same thing might have developed up there. But I just, my recommendation to them, and they listened, was go to Tennessee uh, and work for Jerry Lawler. Uh, you could easily get in as a two-man team down there. Four men was not going to make it. Don't believe that concept would have worked. Um, but, um, you know, that was my call on, and my part, my advice, I should say. They were, they were men. They, they, they could do whatever they wanted, and that's what they chose to do. So that's what happened with those guys. Um, and there was a couple other guys in our training class. There were six guys total besides the four from the power team. There was uh, Dave Sheldon, who was the angel of death, and another guy, Steve DeSalvo, uh, who went to work as either Steve Strong, Stranglers, Strangler, Steve DeSalvo, or Steve Strong in different places in Puerto Rico and in Calgary. Uh, you know, so there were six big guys, and I took bumps with all six of those guys. Because when I said, guys, we're going to practice body slams, before I was smartened up a little bit, I let, and I was only 29 years old, I was in my prime health uh, as a wrestler, I let them body slam me over and over and over uh, to show them the field for a body slam uh, as the giver, not the receiver, but as the giver. So, you know, that was kind of like how we trained with those guys. Red couldn't get in the ring. Uh, Red Bastine, who was one of the best wrestlers in the world in his day, he had artificial hips. He couldn't take any bumps. Uh, I was sharing an apartment with Red. I was living with Red while we were training uh, those six guys. And, uh, you know, Red's been a mentor to me, and, you know, he passed away and, 
I believe in 2011, and uh, I've been to Red's grave in, in Dallas, Texas, too, to to honor him and pay my respects to his grave. But Red was like a father figure to me and a, and a fantastic man and a hero to me. Uh, loved being around Red Bastine. He taught me so much about life and uh, about the business and everything. So, uh, But that that's that was the camp with six guys in 1985, and it was Rick Bassman had paid uh, Bastine all this money, and uh, Red said, Billy, I'm, you know, this is my deal with Red. He says, Billy, you could live with me rent-free. He says, I need help because I can't physically get – I can push off with the guys a little bit. I can tie up, put them in a headlock, and that sort of thing. But I can't go around taking a lot of bumps because of my hips. I can't knock a hip out of out of its socket and have to get an art, another artificial one or something and pay for that. I can't afford it. I said, no, I understand, Red. I'm healthy. I, I'll, man, I love the business. I'll be more than happy to do it for you. So I uh, I busted my butt with those guys, and uh, you know I don't have any regrets with it all. It was, it was all good. It was all part of what I had to do. Uh, you know I springboarded from there to train more guys, so it gave me the confidence to get in the ring with uh, uh, another group of guys after that, and after that, and after that for many years. Well, at this point, we have a game we like to play on the show. We call it Word Association. I'll throw out the names of some people that you most likely have come into contact with in your career, and the first word or two that comes to your mind is the answer. Are you prepared for some Word Association? Am I allowed to curse? If that's the <laughs> word that comes to mind, that's the word okay, that comes no. to mind. You never know. All I'm right, just preparing myself. Coco beware. Uh, uh, great. I mean, I wrestled Coco. You know, good guy. Good guy. It's just nobody Mitch brings his Hart. name up. That's what stalled me there. <laughs> uh, Mick Karch. Mick? Oh, yes. great. great. Fantastic. Fantastic guy. E. Brian Blair. Now or then, uh, then, back in the 80s, fantastic. Greg the Hammer Valentine. No smile. <laughs> uh, uh, one directional, stiff. <laughs> no, but he, I know Greg. I've known him for a long time, since the 80s. A great guy. I mean, he's okay. Don't get me wrong. I've been in the ring with him and everything else. Butch Reed. Uh, good, good guy. I, I, I never wrestled him, but I was, I uh, was on a lot of shows with him in the eighties, mid eighties. Kevin Sullivan. Uh, knowledgeable, very good guy. You know, Jesse especially when he has the power. Uh, durable. <laughs> He, he's he's still going at it after all these years. Uh, he's he's hanging in there. He's doing good. He still has a passion and love for the sport, which is great. Lord Alfred Hayes. Hmm. Nice man. Just a I had a lot of respect for for uh, Alfred. Uh, great guy. Fantastic guy. Michael P. S. Hayes. 
don't really have – I didn't have a lot of dealings with Michael. I worked on a couple shows with him. Um, I mean, talented. Uh, obviously, uh, the best word would be charismatic. Especially Simon with Bud Eric's. Flowers. Hmm. Arrogant. Larry Zabisco. Arrogant. Final one, Sherry Martell. Oh, beautiful soul. She was a nice lady. Uh, did a lot of AWA shows and WWF shows with her. Uh, nice lady. Uh, very sad that she's gone. So many gone way too soon for, you know, any number of reasons. I was trying to explain this to a friend the other day. You know, like how many, why do all wrestlers, I mean, not all, but why do so many die young? And it's like, well, it's a variety of things. It's injuries. It's, fortunately, it's suicide. It's some, it's uh, medications are taking, mixing with alcohol. There's a number of things uh that's gone wrong, you know. Look at uh, look at uh, uh, Tammy Sitch right now. You you know that situation uh, where yes, very unfortunate. A, yeah, and you know Hannibal on his uh, podcast, he he said this many times over the years. Inevitably, this is what's going to happen, and it has happened now. Uh, that somebody's going to die. It's not always going to be just her caught by herself, alcohol, and you know with her. I mean intoxicated or whatever. Uh, I know they're still doing tests, so I shouldn't say that she was intoxicated. I don't know. I'm just saying. Uh, but uh, inevitably, somebody was going to die, and now they have. So how long do you keep somebody like this on the road, you know, and or free, for that matter? Uh, innocent people aren't safe. Could be your family. Could be mine, you know, anybody's. Very sad. Very sad. I knew Tammy before she broke into the business because I Chris Candido was a very good friend of mine. I was in Japan with him, and uh, uh, I met Tammy before she ever was involved in one single match. And she's the sweetest girl you've ever seen in your life, and Chris loved her so much. That's all he talked about on our tour bus in Japan was my girlfriend, Tammy. And I finally got to meet her. I went to a convention. After we got done there, I met her at her convention in 93 in New York City. Uh, I think that John Arezzi was p- putting on, and uh, I met Tammy. And what a sweet girl, beautiful girl. But, you know, you get around the business sometimes, women especially, uh, you can get influenced in the wrong direction. And, uh, you know, you you end up on the short end of the stick like uh, Miss Elizabeth did, you know. And uh, just it's just sad stuff, you know. I agree with you absolutely wholeheartedly there. Well, we have a few minutes on the show left, and I want to give you ample time. So if there's anything you want to say in closing, if you want to plug or promote anything and everything, social media, merchandise, your favorite <laughs> dry cleaner, anything at all, floor is all yours. Well, uh, you know, I used to have a website where I could promote my books or things like that to send people that direction, which is very professional and nice to do. Uh, but I found after a while it was really more – I'm not that savvy on um, computers, uh, honestly. Uh, you know, I, it's, it's like Facebook is my only social media that I use. I don't use Twitter. 
or Instagram or anything else, and I don't have any websites anymore uh, because I, I couldn't understand why I was getting charged 30 here, 50 here, 100 here for each month for this, that, and 100 other things just to maintain a website. So I, I, I did away with all my websites. I, I, I'm retired, so I toned down my expenses and got control of it. So i just like to say, you know, uh, if anybody that's listening or friends of mine on Facebook, they know who I am, uh, you could private message me on Facebook, and I'll respond and tell you how you can uh, order one of my books or buy one of my books, and we can talk uh, directly each to each other. Or if somebody wants to email me, uh, my email address is, it's very simple, it's BillAnderson2009 at yahoo.com. You can send me an email, and I'll be more than happy to respond to you, and we can correspond that way and uh, work out the details if, if you're interested in buying a book. Uh, I don't have my first book. I only have two books that are available. Uh, well, I have multiple copies, obviously, of both these books, but it's My Fallen Friends of Mexico, and it's uh, the second book I did was My uh, Fallen Friends, kind of of the United States, and that's the book that's got, you know, Dr. Jerry Graham in it and uh, uh, Red Bastine and, and the Big Boss Band and Professor Toro Tanaka and Jack Briscoe, great friends, great talents people that were made a big impact on my life and on the wrestling world. Andre the Giant's in it, uh, Bruiser and Crusher, as well as Bruiser Brody uh, and Freddie Blassie. And uh, I did this book, I believe, before John Tolis had passed away. Or wait, I'm not sure. I think I did because Tolis, I didn't get to do him. But anyway, uh, it's, it's, a, it's just a book about their careers and pictures of me with these guys and talking about what they meant to me in my life. Uh, so it's just a tribute book. So if anybody's interested in those books, they can email me or they can contact me through Facebook, uh, and I'll be more than happy to uh, uh, discuss it with anyone uh, about my books. And uh, I'm not really involved in much of anything else. I don't really follow, honestly, too much the current product uh, that's out there. Uh, I just stopped watching wrestling a number of years ago. Uh, I mean, I catch glimpses of things that are happening with, through Facebook and other ways where people will tell me things that are happening. But I just don't – I'm more of an old-school guy. I'm more of a – to me, old-school 70s and 80s uh, and 90s, early 90s. I like that era of wrestling uh, the best. That was my era. Uh, so maybe, I, you know, obviously I'm biased on my opinion um, that I think those are great periods of time uh, for the business. Um, I met a lot of guys, and most of them are no longer here, guys like Johnny Valentine and uh, Iron Mike Mazurki and uh, a lot of veteran old-timers. Dr. Jerry Graham became a manager for my tag team back in 1985. And I met some of these legends of the business that are long gone right now. And, you know, so it's like um, I'm, I'm still uh, in favor of a lot of those guys, uh, Professor Toro Tanaka, Mr. Fuji, and, Oh, man, such great talent uh, that really made the business into what it is today, uh, you know. And I know every generation will say that. Uh, uh, there's guys now uh, that are in the business, they talk about the old days, and it's like 2015, you know. Uh, I talk about the old days from when I came up in the early 70s. And uh, I, I lived in Portland, Oregon for a while, and I got to meet uh, a very, very young Jimmy Snuka in 1973, and uh, and meet Dutch Savage and and uh, I was there living with Kurt von Steiger, my trainer. Him and his wife had brought me up from Phoenix, 
and I, I was living with Kurt training at the uh, Portland Sports Arena with Sandy Barr uh, every every weekend. I would go out there and train. And, you know, it was, it was the old days that I got to meet Mad Dog Vashon up there and Andre the Giant. And, oh, my God, you know, what a way to uh, break into the business was meeting all those guys. I never wrestled in Portland as a pro. Uh, I came back to Phoenix in, in 74, early 74, and started my career. But, you know, I got to hang around some really great, talented guys, Chris Colt, Ron Dupree, uh, Mike Boyette, uh, a lot of talented uh, guys with a lot of charisma, taught me a lot. Um, so I'm very fortunate for the roots I had in the business. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't take anything back. Uh, I was telling a friend of mine today earlier, I said, you know, I strived at, at when I began in wrestling in 73, 74, I had certain goals I wanted to attain. And my, my goals were not to become NWA world champion or WWF world champion or wrestle at Madison Square Garden in New York. My goals were very simple. My goal was to wrestle at the Olympic Auditorium in L.A. My goal was to wrestle at the Blaisdell Arena in Honolulu. And I had realistic goals that I set for myself. And through the years, I accomplished more than accomplished everything I set out to do. And actually, 20 times over, I accomplished what I set out to do. Uh, John Tolis ended up becoming one of my best friends in California in the 80s. Uh, I talked to him just a week before he passed away, and I got to tell him how much uh, I loved the guy. And we, every time we were around each other, we had a lot of fun, and we went to a lot of luncheons together through the early 2000s. And uh, John finally passed away, and but I got to tell him what I thought of him. Um, um, in case he didn't already know it, I probably said it to him every time I ever was ever around him, because I loved the guy. Uh, he was an inspiration to me to break into the business, him and Blassie. So, you know, it was like um, I, those things meant a lot to me, accomplishing those and becoming friends with guys that I got to see as a kid that I worshipped, uh, becoming a part of the show with them or wrestling against. I wrestled John Tolis uh, on WWF shows at the uh, Olympic Auditorium in 1984, January of 84. I was wrestling against John Tolis on a WWF show. It's like, wow, how can it get any better than this? You know, and uh, I was a fan going to that arena in the 70s as just a, a skinny little teenager. And now here here I am in the 80s wrestling to get some of the guys that were major stars back then. So it was like that's that's all I needed to accomplish to feel success in the business. And uh, uh, I had the greatest compliment in the world uh, one time uh, given to me by, well, two. One, the ultimate warrior on his Hall of Fame speech, he mentioned myself and Red Bastine to the world. So one thing I do know is is in Jim Helwig's mind, or Warrior's mind as he wanted to be called, uh, on his final 72 hours of life, my name was on his lips. That meant the world to me. And I'm telling you, I cried buckets when that man passed away after that weekend. Uh, Jim was a really good man and always showed me and all my students a ton of respect. But another time during a Christian event uh, here in Phoenix in Oh, probably about uh, probably about 20 years ago, or yeah, about 20 years ago, Sting came up to me. I was watching a baptism. Uh, Nikita Koloff and Ted DiBiase were baptizing Terry Taylor in water in a pool at a hotel we were staying at. And Sting saw I was in tears on the side of the pool, and, and he walked up to me, and he said, Billy, what's going on? And I said, oh, man, I'm just amazed and so proud of some of you guys in the business that have stepped up to become better people and not want to live in the bars and not want to 
just live a really bad life and, or die of drugs or whatever. You guys are cool guys. You guys are wanting to live life to the best for your families and everything. And I said, I'm really proud of all of you guys. And he says, well, he says, Billy, let me tell you one thing. And I swear to God, this is what Steve Borden told me. He says, without you, without Billy Anderson, there would have never been a sting. He says, Steve Borden might have gone on and just ran a, a Gold's Gym somewhere around California with the wrong advice. He says, your advice, your guidance, in all honesty, with no thinking of money involved. He says, your advice paved my way and gave me a direction in my career. And, of course, he said, I had to go on and do all the hard, hard work to attain my reputation. You know, all the countless uh, matches with Ric Flair and everybody else he had. But he says, your advice initially gave me my start. And he says, I won't ever forget that. And so, you know, things like that, I take that meaning as uh, all worthwhile. And I couldn't change anything or wouldn't change anything in my life. For the, It's like the uh, movie, It's a Wonderful Life. If you were never born, how would it have affected other people? Um, you know, you never know. It's something to think about sometimes. Direction that you took one time, how it affected other people's lives. So if I had any positive influence with certain people, uh, God bless them. Um, you know, that's a good thing. So it's something I can take to heart and take to my grave, you know, with me. Well, Mr. Anderson, I want to thank you very, very much for taking time out of your day to be here with us. I have always enjoyed your work, and I want to thank you very much for all the contributions you've made to wrestling. I know that spans a very wide gamut because you've been important in so many roles, and I thank you, and we'd love to have you back to talk more at some point. Thank you. Anytime you want, and I appreciate your uh, hospitality and your professionalism, and uh, God bless everybody, and uh, you know, Let's live a long life and uh, let's do our thing and uh, be be respectful of each other and, uh, you know, keep on keeping on. All right. Well, fans, if you've not picked up a book, I would suggest you try to get a copy of one of the books that Bill Anderson has put out there. If you're not familiar, jump on the YouTube and search them out. And if you're looking for me this week. I have the week off, unfortunately. A couple things came up. I won't be at a live event, but I encourage you to all find one near you and support Wrestle Club in Idaho coming back to the Gym City Convention. They're going to have a show every hour starting at noon up until 5 o'clock, so make sure you support them stay for Wrestle Club. Timber Pro Wrestling, if you're up in our neck of the woods, it's Startup Washington, big show for them. So find yourself a show. There's a lots and lots out there this particular week. Go support. We will be back with you Sunday afternoon. We're hoping Leatherface will be able to make it. He has a couple of scheduling issues, but he is going to try his best to be with us. And then one week from today, we have Demetra Star. The Wing She-Cat with us, promoter slash wrestler out of the Chicago area. So make sure you have plans to be with us. Everybody continue to be safe out there, and we'll talk to you soon.